This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Julian, Sam M., Emmelyn, Levi, and Amy. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Julian, who asks, There are many translations and versions of the Bible. Are some of them more or less accurate or true than others? What Bible do you recommend? Well, Julian, anytime you're dealing with a translation of the Bible or of any other book, there are going to be some shortcomings, because no human work is perfect. But some translations are better than others. The challenge is you can't really judge whole translations versus whole translations. Instead, you have to compare sentences to sentences, verses to verses. Now, this means that one English translation might be better in one verse, while another translation is superior in another verse. You just have to compare. This is why Augustine's advice from all the way back in the 400s AD is still good today. He said to learn as much as you can of the original languages, compare translations to each other, and read everything you read in context. Fortunately, interlinear editions of the Bible and digital Bibles and other tools make it much easier now than it's ever been before to compare the original to the translations, even if you don't know a lot of Greek or Hebrew. Now, in terms of recommending a translation, on the whole, I think the English Standard Version, which is the one we use in church, is a good starting point. Its translators strive to be essentially literal, which means that this translation tries to follow not only the meaning of the original, but also the form of the original, and that can be really helpful when you're trying to study things down to the details, down to the structure of the sentences, and not just the flow of the thoughts. Now, for a looser thought-for-thought comparison, the New Living Translation is a good resource to consult. Another resource I often recommend are the translation notes in the New English Translation. They're really helpful if you're curious about how some of the more challenging passages are addressed by different translators. And now Sam M. wants to know, after Jesus ascended to heaven, who carried on David's line? Well, Sam, unlike an earthly king who dies and then passes his crown to a successor, Jesus still rules and reigns as the king from David's line. But keeping that in mind, there is what we might think of as a line of succession. Now, a crown usually passes down from the king to his heir, and this line is no different. We just have to ask ourselves, who are the heirs of Jesus? Now, he had no physical children while he was on earth. So what we're looking for is something else, what we could call spiritual children. And who are the spiritual children of Jesus? Those who have faith in him are his spiritual children. Paul says in Romans 8 that believers are children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, If we endure, 
we will also reign with him, with Jesus. Which is why the Apostle Peter refers to believers as a royal priesthood. So, in that sense, you could say that believers carry on the royal line of David, not by taking over for Jesus, but by joining him through faith. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Emmeline. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Emmeline's question. Is it okay to have more than one spouse? If not, why did so many people in the Bible do that? No, Emmeline, it's not okay. And technically, many people in the Bible do not do that. The practice of polygamy a man taking more than one wife, is something that we see only in the Old Testament. And even there, it's not presented in a good light. Jesus clearly states the biblical view of marriage in Matthew 19, and he connects it to Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus also gives us a way of understanding all the human deviations from that pattern. He attributes them to the hardness of your heart. Let's take a look at that. But first, consider why this is such an important question. The prevailing view of marriage today runs contrary to Jesus' view. People argue, why should we care what Jesus says about marriage? After all, the Bible seems to be okay with polygamy in the Old Testament and only abolishes it in the New Testament. They argue that views of marriage change over time, so what was right yesterday can become wrong today, and what's wrong today might be right tomorrow. You can't apply the Bible's standard, they say, because that standard changes. But that's not actually what happens in the Bible. Instead, creation shows us God's model for marriage, which Jesus makes clear And the Apostle Paul explains the symbolic significance that the husband and wife picture the relationship of Christ and the church. Any view of marriage that conflicts with the creation narrative, that contradicts Jesus in Matthew 19, or undermines Paul's symbolism is obviously not marriage as God intends it. But people in the Bible, just like today, practice a lot of things that are contrary to God's word. Now, in Matthew 19, Jesus is talking about divorce. The Pharisees suggest that a man can divorce his wife for any reason. But Jesus says that the creation of the first couple shows us how it should be. Genesis 2 says that two shall become one flesh. And Jesus adds, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, this doesn't settle it for the Pharisees. If Jesus is right, then why does the law of Moses have provisions to regulate divorce? They're basically arguing the same thing people argue today. If the Old Testament seems to contradict what Jesus and his apostles teach, then why should we listen to them? Jesus explains that the law makes this allowance because of the hardness of the human heart. In other words, people are sinful, and one of the purposes of the law is to restrain evil. Just because the law permits something doesn't mean that God approves of it. He might tolerate it, but it doesn't reflect his purpose for marriage. In the Old Testament, the first man to take multiple wives is called Lamech. His line of descent is opposed to the sons of Seth, who follow God. Abraham doesn't have multiple wives, but he does have a living arrangement that amounts to the same thing, and it is portrayed as a bad thing that gives rise to lots of suffering. 
In Deuteronomy, God commands kings specifically not to multiply wives, but they still do it. Solomon is the obvious example, and he too is portrayed negatively on this account. In Acts 17, Paul preaches to the Athenians that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, this suggests that before Jesus, God bore patiently with a lot of things that fell short of his standard. But now we are called to gospel repentance because God's will has become clear. We can apply this logic to Old Testament polygamy. It was never right, but God bore with it patiently until Christ. And then Jesus made what was always true so clear that it could no longer be denied. Now, why would God wait until Jesus to do this? Well, perhaps it was exactly because of the symbolism inherent in marriage. Once the bridegroom, Jesus, had come for his bride, the church, marriage was called to remember what God intended it to be. As you can see, the Bible's account of marriage doesn't lead us to think that it's all relative and culturally conditioned, that marriage can be whatever we want it to be. If anything, the way Jesus interprets the Old Testament illustrates the opposite. People were tolerating a lot of things in marriage that God did not approve because it was culturally acceptable. And then Jesus came and insisted on the right interpretation. If we follow Jesus, then we have to take his teaching on marriage seriously and accept that the creation order reflects God's will for human marriages. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Levi, who asks, What is the oldest building you've seen? I can't say for sure, Levi, because I've seen a lot of old buildings, and they don't always have signs saying how old they are. And a lot of old buildings have been added onto over the years, so parts of them are older than others. In my lifetime, I've walked on Roman walls in England. I've been inside church buildings that went back to the early Middle Ages. But I'm guessing the oldest building that I've seen in person is one that I actually visited not long ago when I was in Paris in October. The National Museum of the Middle Ages in Paris incorporates a much older structure, ancient Roman baths that date from the 3rd century AD, so about 1800 years ago. I think that's got to be the oldest structure that I've seen with my own eyes and not just in photographs. Now, the oldest... uh, assemblage of stuff that I've seen. I don't think you can call this a building. It's probably Stonehenge in England. And of course, in museums, I've seen a lot of objects that are even older than that. And finally, Amy asks, do you like hot chocolate? No, Amy, I don't like hot chocolate. I love hot chocolate. In fact, one of the treats that Lori and I enjoyed when we were in Paris was the world-famous hot chocolate. Although, to be honest, I think the Parisian-style hot chocolate you can get at the patisserie in downtown Sioux Falls is even better. And now that the temperature is below freezing and there's a blanket of snow on the ground, this is the perfect time for a cup. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.